Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If you have musician friends, they might have told you 2023 has been a hard year. Like streaming doesn't pay much, the cost of touring has gone up, small venues are shutting down. Today on the podcast, you can hear from two musicians about how tough it is to make a living as an artist and how we got here. I'm Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Look, it's December. It's that time of the year where everybody makes their year-end list, right? And listen, I love a year-end review as much as the next guy. You know what? I actually want to hear yours. If you got a year-end year-end list, please share it with me on Instagram. But in the meantime, on today's podcast, we want to do a different kind of year-end review. This is not so much about what we listen to. It's actually about the people who make the music. And in particular, those independent artists who don't have a Taylor Swift-sized promotional budget behind them. It seems like 2023, this year, it got harder to make a living as an independent independent artist. So today we want to talk to two artists who know a lot about this. Rolly Pemberton is a writer and rapper known as Cadence Weapon. Damon Krakowski is one half of the indie rock duo Damon and Naomi. Damon, Rolly, welcome to Commotion. What's good, folks? How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy that you're here. Damon, let me start with you. Uh, This year... Spotify raises prices, raises subscription price again, but uh, artists are not reaping the benefits of that. In fact, things are about to get kind of worse for musicians like yourself. You just wrote about this uh, in The Guardian. Tell us about what Spotify has in store for you. Yeah, this sounds kind of incredible, but a company like Spotify seems to think it can do whatever it wants. And to some degree, that's true because of their market share. Hmm. So they've suddenly announced that starting in 2024, they will not pay any royalties at all. They just won't account for tracks that get under a certain amount of plays. They're setting the minimum for now at a thousand streams a year, Hmm. which is not a hugely high bar, but in fact, that cuts out, this is amazing, but Billboard says it's true, two thirds of the tracks on the platform will no longer (laughs) receive any royalties. Oh my God. So So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about you know, Spotify is making noise that, oh, they're just targeting um, kind of junk tracks, you know, people gaming the system, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But that's not true. It's when, you, when you've got two thirds of the tracks on the system, you're talking about a lot of musicians out there, like real working musicians, just being told your work has no value. That's it. I, quite literally no value. It's not like this here's a little bit less value. It's like quite literally we will pay you nothing at all. Uh, just to zero. We should say, Damon, your issues with Spotify go well beyond the, just the pay rates. You've written a lot about how streaming services isolate musicians from one another. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I'm, and I, mean, I think what they've done is they've put themselves between us and our fans. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we have our primary relationship has to be to a platform and the listeners also has to be to a platform. But the problem is that, that, you know, people aren't fans of a platform. They're fans of musicians. They're fans of music that they love. Hmm. And we don't play 
to put something on a platform either. We play for our audiences. And I think, you know, they've, they've found a way to be that middle middleman and put themselves in between. And then they, then they, they, they work that, you know, they, they mm. work at every angle they can. And it's very hard for us to reach our audience directly and vice versa. I mean, when you log on to Spotify, you listen to somebody, you don't really get much information about them. You don't find out even who's playing on your record and no musicians listed. Yeah. Uh, you may not hear that, see what the album is titled necessarily, depending how you found the track. You don't know the record label it's on. You don't have any way in to kind of join the community that's around that artist, except by going to shows. So, you know, live music is is like sustaining a lot of us. And that's how the industry has shifted a lot. Right. But in terms of recorded music, we're really being removed from our from our natural audience. Uh, I, I appreciate the shift to uh, the touring because I wanted to talk about that because this was a conversation, Roly, right? It's like as Spotify is changing, how musicians get paid, also how much they get paid, uh, there was this sort of belief that started to come up that, you know what, artists can just make up their revenue shortfall shortfall by just, you, you just got to tour more. You just got to be on the road a little bit more. But in 2023, that became less of a viable option for a lot of musicians. Give us a sense of how the touring industry has changed over the past couple of years and what artists like yourself are up against. Yeah, you know, just <clears throat> after the uh, pandemic it started, really, the margins for everything just got tighter and tighter. Mm. You know, it became, which touring already is uh, something you only do really if you love music and you really care about it because it's not a big money-making maneuver mm. in, in any sense of the word. Um, but everything, you know, prices for flights, pa- prices for gas, prices for hotels, uh, all these expenses that you have for touring, everything went up. But our fees uh, have stayed the same or gone down. Mm. And on top of that, we're experiencing uh, merch cuts from these venues mm-hmm. where they're taking anywhere from 15 to 35 percent of uh, our merch sales. So there really is not a lot of relief. And and I find that funny. Uh, Spotify, they're, they're also the same people who say oh, it's okay. You just need to make more music. You just need to release three or four albums a year and you should be able to keep up. Fine. Right. I, uh, I'm glad that you brought up the merch thing because you started a hashtag my merch campaign and that really picked up momentum this past year, Rolly. It's like this effort to stop music venues from automatically taking a specific percentage of the artist merchandise sales uh, up to like 20% or so. This past September, we should say the punk musician uh, Jeff Rosenstock sparked this big discussion about the topic online when he called out the venues who were still taking a cut of his merch sales did you see more venues start to give a better cut um, in terms of how they're handling merch, Roly? In my experience, just I, I toured with Hot Chip in the spring. Yeah. And I was finding I wasn't seeing as many merch cuts at that time. And But when I did, they were so aggressive. It was unbelievable. Really? I, I, yeah, there was definitely one venue i believe in seattle where on top of it ended up being like a 30 percent merch, merch cut as soon as you get there they strong arm you and like grab all your bags and start counting through all your merch they literally like just take it and start counting it like it's not yeah, a, yeah. And, and not only take it and they, they threw it on the ground oh no they, oh, uh, the, the t-shirts themselves the yeah. shirts are getting dirty i'm like come on man like be a little respectful here yeah um and then they're like we're gonna sell it we've got our cash registers we got our computer system we're gonna help you it really it reminds me of like a mafia protection it's <laughs> like reminded, hey let, it's reminding me of canadian immigration actually when, <laughs> when you cross the border they grab our t-shirts when we cross the border and they start counting them the same kind of deal <laughs> yes they count them <laughs> well, okay, but like what what seems frustrating about this, David, is that like there's no 
path, right? So like we start talking about Spotify and how it's supposed to democratize people's access to music, and then Spotify comes out and says, you know what? If you get fewer than a thousand listens in a year, you're not going to make any money at all. Um, you start to say, okay, maybe you can go on the road, and then we find out that it's more and more difficult to go on the road. It seems like any solution to boost a musician's income gets saddled with its own kind of roadblocks. Vinyl, for example, remains this really popular alternative to streaming and a way for fans to support artists directly. But then the cost of shipping vinyl also keeps going up. How has that affected you? Oh yeah, that's a, that's that's a kind of a hidden problem, especially for U.S. artists like myself, because our 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 postal service is outrageously expensive for international shipping mm. in particular. So we've just we can't ship. We've always uh, my band's always had a big audience in Europe and the U.K., and we just can't ship product over there anymore mm. but i was really interested in the way Rolly was describing um the experience on the on the road right now of kind of a, a bunch of, of venues ha- are behaving better i think really i mean it seems, feels like they're kind of responding to the pressure that you've brought and and my group Uma in the u.s has brought but then the other side of it is that there's a whole group that feel licensed to do whatever they choose you know you know, the outrageous behavior like Rolly was describing. And I think that's what we're getting everywhere is this split um, between um, kind of the, the independent network, the kind of, uh, you know, lower level that we all work in. That's But we, when you think about it, that's like, that's the bulk of working musicians. Mm-hmm. And then you've got these corporations at the top. And it's like, okay, handle your pop stars, handle your arena shows. Fine, that's your world. I've never been a part of that world. But when they reach down, and they buy up venues that are smaller, and then they end up bringing their practices to, you know, like Hot Chip and Cadence Weapon touring, mm. and they treat them like, like they're an arena band with money to burn, and we're not. Like, and that that's like a big problem. So I feel like everywhere we turn, we're running into huge corporations that are controlling it again. Live music, recorded music, streaming, even pressing vinyl has gotten very hard because mm. the major labels got interested in vinyl. And they clogged up all the plants with their limited editions of, you know, Led Zeppelin or whatever, like old catalog records that okay. a million colors. And we can't get new stuff pressed in, in a timely way. Rolly, what do you make of that? The idea that uh, larger corporations have sort of taken up all the space. Um, and as a result, there's just fewer and fewer spaces for independent artists to just travel through. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I feel like it's just something that's been happening incrementally in the music industry. Um, I feel like with, with, with streaming companies like Spotify, I, I think the, the average music fan, an easy way to think of it is it's similar to other tech companies and how they're all about disrupting whatever industry they're in. Sure. And it's very similar to something like Uber. I feel like us as music workers, we're in the same fight as somebody who's a rideshare driver because these companies like Spotify, they're like, taking our industry and separating us from our revenue that we used to have. Mm. So it's just a, it's just a way of, I think your average music fan needs to really consider what they're doing when they're actually listening to something on Spotify. I, I think that the idea that uh, however you consume music is not neutral is a really important message to get across because you're making choices. And I understand that streaming services might make it easy for you to make certain choices, but it is not neutral in the sense that it does affect the artist differently uh, depending on the choices that you end up making. Uh, let me ask you, Damon, I think this year is showing us that streaming isn't going to go away anytime soon. So what can we do? What can we do to at least make the streaming economy just a little bit more equitable for, for smaller artists? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. And the big challenge is is because I agree. I think we need to accept the technology. We can't go backwards and say yeah. like, well, let's just you know get rid of digital because there's so many advantages too to streaming. I mean, I really appreciate having access to music uh, that is hard to get a hold of, and I also appreciate how democratizing it is in terms of reach because you know you can you can hear anything you want even if you can't afford to you know a massive record collection and all, I'm I'm really feel like that's all great positive things mm-hmm. but the negatives are really powerful and I think I think the biggest thing is to sort of it's it's connected to a lot of other things in our culture I mean I think it's connected to a corporate control of a lot of our of our decision making of our limited choices yeah. and I think the other side of streaming is that yeah, you get all the music you want, but there's a limited way that you can access it and you can hear it. And for one, you have to trade your personal data for it. And things like this mm-hmm. are really serious and have far-reaching re- consequences. And so I think it's more about like being aware of what the trade is that you're really making. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to necessarily like figure out a way to pay the musicians. That's going to be our job to kind of like figure out how to deal with this system and speak up for ourselves. But I would say think about what you yourself are trading for that free access or really low cost access. Um, and it's, it's, it's not nothing. It's never really free. Uh, Roly, despite all of this, you say you're still hopeful. We got about a minute left here. Why are you still hopeful? I'm inherently a very optimistic person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, in, I was like, after all line, that, after all that Damon just said, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, all right, let's, let's be hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still vibing. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, I feel like, um, Things have gotten a lot better with touring mm. in a lot of ways. Like I feel like versus during the very beginning of the pandemic when there was no shows and then it was all the seated shows and it was just terrible. Uh, we're getting yeah. back to a bit more normalcy with that. And I feel like just personally streaming is not a huge part of what I do as an artist. And I feel like the excitement and engagement with music for your average fan is way up these days. I feel mm. like it, it's just changing and it's, it's, it's changing form. It's maybe... People are thinking of music more as something to attach to the content they create on TikTok and things like that. And I find it really fun to learn different ways to adapt to that. Mm -hmm. All right. That sounds sounds like a pretty good starting grounds for hope. I appreciate you giving us that insight. Roly, Damon, thank you so much for your time, you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Of course. That was our chat on the state of independent music economy. Damon Krakowski is one half of Damon and Naomi. He was in New York City. And Orly Pemberton is based in Hamilton, Ontario. He's a rapper better known as Cadence Weapon. They both have newsletters, by the way, and you should check them out because they dig into a lot of these issues. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about the number one movie at the box office this week. Have a listen. Save me. Save me, my dog. What exactly are you? (laughs) Your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. 
That is from The Boy and the Heron. It is the latest animated movie from the legendary Japanese filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki and his studio Ghibli Empire. And what an empire it has been. For 45 years, Miyazaki has made unforgettable movies. We're talking about movies like My Neighbor Totoro or Spirited Away or Ponyo. The Boy and the Heron is expected to be, we think it's going to be, the last movie from Miyazaki. He's 82, so fair enough. But if this is indeed the end of the road for Miyazaki, he's going to go out on top. Jackson Weaver reviewed the film for CBC. He's here right now in studio to tell me about Miyazaki's newest movie. Jackson, what's good, homie? So much. So much. This movie, for one. <laughs> this movie is what's good. L- listen, for people who are not completely familiar with the world of Miyazaki, can mm. you just explain what makes his work so distinctive first? I mean, the first one I'll say is how many times he has retired. So we're thinking this is going to be the end. I think it's been like seven times. But sure. like we're talking about the actual work itself. If yeah. you've watched one of these movies, I think you just have an implicit reaction. But it's kind of a way that he he makes his animated movies kind of for kids he said it's yeah. to like help them be self-sufficient they're over they're they're unable to like get self-reliant so he's mm. making movies that are about actualization coming of age but like we have disney we have pixar we know that kind of story but sure. there's just like another tradition in japan and also with miyazaki's amazing kind of oeuvre is that he really does these adult, not adult themes, but like as a kid, you have scary thoughts, grown up thoughts, heavy thoughts. Heavy themes, I think, is the better thing. And he does it in this escapist, fantastical way. Like if you've seen Spirited Away, this little girl is like lost in this world that really actually feels very dangerous. Kiki's delivery service is fun and light, but also she's like, Kiki's like on her own trying to figure things out. It it just, I think it's like, oh, and Graveyard of the Fireflies. I don't really think that's for kids at all. But (laughs) like all these films are fantastical, magical, wonderful, but all also, they have something really deep, dark, adult in the sense that, like, we are grappling with something that is universal to all of us and is genuinely scary. And I right. feel like it comes at you on whatever age you are, whatever ability you are to understand, on your own level. So if you're, like, a 10-year-old, you'll love it. If you're 50, 30, 50, uh, yeah. 90, whatever, it yeah. still has more to serve you, more to, like, unsettle you and to make you grow. Let me ask you about you. How did you get into Miyazaki movies? Oh, I mentioned it already, but Kiki's Delivery Service, man, had that on VHS, and yeah. I forced my mom to play it. It's like, I have younger <laughs> siblings, and we had to watch Finding Nemo a million times with them. That yeah. was Kiki's delivery service for me. Yeah. But not only, like, the movie itself, but, like, on the VHSs, like, you had to re- uh, fast-forward through the trailer, so I never really did it. It's too much effort to get it right. But, like, they had the trailer for Castle in the Sky as well in, yeah. the, in the beginning of it. I never... It's one of the only <laughs> Miyazaki movies I still have never seen. But I remember watching that trailer being like, what is this story? Just the trailer. <laughs> Just it was a very premise so of the, yeah. epic. It was again like for a kid. Either. It's yeah. I mean the trailer's great. You should watch the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> but like both those, it was kind of like like a like a double package, double feature movie. And again, like they're always not always, but so many of them are these coming of age stories, but they're epics. They're like Greek epics for kind of kids, but again, I want to say that because I don't limit it just to kids. But I like this picture of all your siblings being like, we got to watch Finding Nemo. And you're like, get out of here with this. It's Kiki's delivery service again. Let's go. We're you know, going like, on the broomstick. A- We're de- making this delicious food. Oh my God. Th- that's also what makes Miyazaki special is the food scenes. Oh my goodness. I, go on. The f- okay, Miyazaki has this trend. Studio Ghibli has this trend of every single movie. It's kind of like almost a gag, but it's not funny. It's just something that they always do. Yeah. Is he has this passion for food and 
and food animation. Yeah. So every single movie, you're going to get some scene where people are making the most delicious food you can <laughs> ever have possibly imagined. Sometimes yeah. it's like actually like alive in some weird way. Yeah. But whatever it is, in Boy in the Hair, and there's a scene where one of the characters makes jam on bread, which doesn't sound that interesting. No. But the way that it is animated, I watching the characters eat that bread is the most delicious meal I've ever had. <laughs> Didn't have just, it. Just the, just the process of watching this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about The Boy in the Hair, and I'm glad mm. that you transitioned there. So mm. your review digs into the backstory behind mm-hmm. this movie. Let's explain why Miyazaki wanted to make this particular movie at this point in his life. How did we get there? I mean, if you know The Road, Cormac McCarthy, it's a book about the ending of the world, and I kind of wrote about this in the review where he made that because he had a son when he was like, almost 70 years old and it's yeah. about kind of like what does it mean that I'm going to lose my son and when he's going to grow up without me sure. this is kind of a similar thing Miyazaki made this for his grandson but it's also related to just the rules for how one should live how one should live Miyazaki is somebody who grew up during World War II in Japan mm. um, and he has had this long and storied career and the messages in this movie are kind of subtly adapted from a book, but really they're actually made to showcase what it means to be a good person, Mm. what it means to um, be of service to humanity, what it means to create, what fascism means. There's so much in there. I could go on. We can go on for like another half hour if you have the time. But this is like a lesson in how one should live and what matters if you are a person in this world. Dustin, I always wish we had the time, but we don't have that much time. (laughs) But I I do think we have enough time to talk about the fact like this is the number one movie in box office, Mm. you know, in North America. And the idea that he's gotten to make his most successful movie now, that's Mm. interesting to me. But what's really interesting to me is like how you walk into the movie theater thinking about the fact that this might be Miyazaki's Mm. final movie Mm. and how that maybe changes your relationship with it. How did that change your relationship with this movie? It made me look for things like you see in like the Fablemans of Spielberg or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino, even um, Irishman with Scorsese, where like you're looking for these artistic reflections. And even more so, this movie in Japan is called How Do You Live, which is based on the book that it's kind of based on, which is Hmm. this essayic textbook on philosophy written by this uh, philosopher who was put in prison during World War II for having individualistic thought. And when you have that backstory paired with the fact that this is somebody at the end of theoretically their career mm-hmm. um, looking back on this huge work of, uh, of art, this, this whole studio that they built, you're looking to see how these metaphors kind of play in. And that's really what keyed my focus in. And mm-hmm. when you're looking at it, there's like a character in it, the great grand uncle um, and all these other characters who are living in this created world. And there's the discussions of should you go back to the real world? Should you inhabit your fake fictional world in which you're safe? Mm-hmm. And there's a definitive answer given. And when you pair that with where Miyazaki is in his career and where what directors tend to do when they're in that phase of their career, when they have the have the luxury of knowing that they have made a whole career and they kind of see the end coming. They can look back at their... You can look back and you see these kind of movies in their own kind of genre. And I 
think that really will feed your interpretation of the movie. I'm on three watches and I'm starting to understand it. Oh, wow. <laughs> three watches. That's amazing. Listen, we literally have like 30 seconds left, oh, but I just want to talk about yeah. the fact that this movie um, is a number one movie. Mm. I think that's surprising to me. What do you think is driving the demand for Miyazaki in this part of the world? I mean, Miyazaki, I think he's he started out the gate with a movie. They didn't expect it to do any numbers. They thought it'd be one and done. It went big. Then the, a couple movies later, Spirited Away went big. It's kind of just always been like, well, do the next one and see if it works. And he's been doing that consistently for so long other than that one CGI movie. Yeah. Everything's been so good. I think that that's paired into people that's the average moviegoer willing to accept, okay, this movie is something I'm willing to see. Also, I mean, 2021 Parasite, we saw, you know, getting over the one-inch hurdle of subtitles. That's yeah. another thing in, in the public discourse. So I just think it's hit after hit, average moviegoer now willing to willing to bite the bullet and maybe go to the subtitles or at least the dubs. Listen, before I let you go, I think you probably saw, like me, that Andrew Brower's, uh-huh. Brower's died last night. Um, he was 61 years old. Uh-huh. This is an actor who really brought it on TV shows. We're uh-huh. talking about, you know, Homicide Life on the Street. That uh-huh. he, he won two Emmys for that show. Um, and then also, of course, Captain Ray Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> The actual suspect is Jesse Germwald, a disgruntled civilian admin who was recently fired by the mounted unit. He's gone to ground, but detectives throughout the city are checking every possible hideout. Diaz, Boyle, here's a list of locations in our precinct. Be thorough. Yes, sir. And just to be clear, if I went missing, you guys would conduct an equally thorough search, right? You should get going. I, there's something about him in Brooklyn Nine-Nine mm-hmm. that to me is just so striking. Like he has this impeccable comedic timing. Mm-hmm. What, what, do, what do you think makes him so memorable? I mean, I think that is ironically what is memorable because until very recently, he was not a comedian. Not he a was comedic not a comedic actor, actor yeah. at all. He was Juilliard trained, Homicide Life in the Street you mentioned, but yeah. he also won an Emmy for H, uh, sorry, an uh, FX series, Thief. Yeah. Um, so many of these dark brooding very dramatic characters and he parlayed that into this very unexpected, very almost surreal comedy where he's playing it straight down the line and just hit so many people in such a, in such a particular way. Yeah. Like my first actual interaction, not interaction, but observation of him was in House where he was a psychiatrist. <laughs> but he's so good. I remember good. that episode. He's so good. He's really... He's- He's yeah. so good in that. It also has this comedy, but this seriousness in it as well. And that's really, I think, what people identified, loved so much about him. I love when an actor gets like a second wind to their career. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things in the world. Listen, Jackson Weaver, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. Jackson Weaver is an entertainment reporter for CBC in Toronto. And you can go see The Boy and the Heron in theaters right now. My name is Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud. Hey, I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.